Welcome back to the Confluence Podcast, episode four already. And we haven't even officially announced the podcast. This will be the first episode that I think we're officially launching so that there's a little bit of a back catalog, which is a, you know, this is a, a launch strategy, a, a really, this is rocket science at this point. I think, Randall, how are you? How are you feeling about the show? Yeah, it's fun. Uh, you know, I've got a big long list of people that I'm going to either uh, beg, borrow, and harass to get to come on. So I'm looking forward to all these conversations. Yeah, this conversation that we're introducing today was great. I got to watch the behind-the-scenes version of it. You did the interview with, with our guest. Do you want to introduce the guest and how this uh, episode came to be? Yeah, uh, the guest this week is Joel Pennington. Uh, Joel is with a company called Vim. Um, so play on them and Joel, uh, when I met him, he was at Autodesk and he was on part of the team that was working on a game engine called Stingray for those that were around Autodesk when they were working on that. So Joel, uh, when Autodesk kind of shut down that, that initiative, several of that team, including Joel ended up, you know, being part of this new company called Vim. So they were taking a lot of their expertise and knowledge about about rendering and, and taking data sets and rendering very large data sets and running it through the pipe. Um, I think what's interesting about this conversation with Joel though was not only that core engine and capability to render a lot of geometry and import and get that in the right form, but ultimately what Joel uh, you know talks about in this episode is how they ended up uh, you know starting to use Power BI to really make the information and data more approachable to more people on the front end. So to me, that's a really, you know, the, the whole UI UX about, you know, how do we take complicated information and, you know, what should the strategies be for exposing that to more people, mm -hmm. uh, not fewer people. So kind of democratizing uh, information in those ways. So great conversation with Joel. The whole idea of the full potential of BIM versus the limited potential of BIM that most people end up <laughs> kind of going down that path because we take shortcuts, we we do all kinds of things as architects and as you know, if you're a if you're a AEC kind of on the design team and anywhere in there, a consultant, you know, an engineer, uh, a landscape architect, whatever, you're always looking just to hit the deadline, and and so a lot of times you end up omitting things. But then you look at what the the promise of the full potential of BIM was from the very beginning. And it's to enable way more stakeholders than just the design team into that, the use of that data. And I think one thing that, that Joel kept bringing up that was really interesting is just talking about how people on the design team, their, their brain isn't really set up to deal with it from a data standpoint. They're still thinking of it from a geometry standpoint and a drawing and a representation and graphics. And there's this whole other side to it. And the full potential of BIM is to have access at your fingertips of those things and the people that he's talking about adding value to the the financial side the facilities operator side there's the client side the owner side and and not knowing or ever wanting to have to actually open a, a revit file or an archicad file or anything like that but actually extracting what they need and putting it in a tool that they probably are already using in their in their office, right? And and making it so that they can drive it and dive into that that data side of things and understand what they're talking about on these really complex, really high dollar projects. This is a great kind of 
you know, really insightful conversation into that side of things and expanding the audience for BIM. I think that, you know, that, that is really what it comes down to and putting it in a tool somebody's already familiar with and they don't have to learn the authoring tool of that model. No, I completely agree. And, you know, if you think about on the consumption side, you know, I would, as you were saying that, I'm thinking you got to put in the language that the different people speak. Right. So if you're in finance, you've got to translate that information into finance speak. Mm -hmm. And so how, how do you take all of this information and make sure that the different stakeholders. So, you know, as you'll hear Joel talking about a lot of, you know, what is the owner, what are the owner and the owner's team need? How are they interacting throughout this process? And, uh, you know, I think more and more as, you know, the reality is, is that everybody's always trying to constrict the time schedule on these projects, which means you need all those team members interacting early and often mm -hmm. in this process. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, as time goes on more and more exposure and kind of democratization of this information be an important part to be able to move quickly right. and uh, to make sure that you get, you know, what you want out the end. And the way that their tool allows you to slice and dice a model and get, because people say, you know, dashboards, and dashboard could be anything. And I literally, that's the point. It's a flexible, malleable interface to put the right information in front of the right audience and to be able to use a flexible tool like Power BI to build an interface that is bespoke to the user. If it's like, if we stay on this financial idea, if they want to see rooms in a certain way, it's not, it's not just so they can spin a model around, right? It's so that they can actually see visually and drill down into the information that they need to get to. And, and this is like a whole dark art in itself is building a UI for other people to experience and as a tool, the project that we're all talking about. I think that there's, there's so much potential and, and maybe untapped potential for so many firms out there. And I hope that the audience of this show gets a lot out of this and, and really understands like the, the expertise of the dark arts that Joel Pennington brings to the process with what they're doing at Vim. And, and we'll reach out to him and, and learn more after hearing this kind of behind the scenes look at what they're doing. I agree. All right. Well, let's jump into the episode. All right. Thanks. Welcome to the Confluence podcast. I'm Randall Stevens and I have with me today, Joel Pennington from Vim. Welcome, Joel. Hey, Randall. Thanks for having me. I told you earlier, you were going to be one of the early guinea pigs, but we promise this will be painless. So, okay. I love it. Why don't you give me, let's just kick this off with just giving us a little bit of your background, who you are and who Vim is that you're working with, and uh, then we'll dig in. So I always wanted to be an architect, Randall, uh, and I went to a special high school in Canada that taught that and then realized that um, measuring as-builts and drawing bathroom pods when I'm lucky was like not the architecture career that I thought it would be. Uh, so I went to film school and learned this thing called 3D animation and 3D real-time. And that took me through this long circuitous journey all the way to Vim, where we built a cloud platform for making BIM available to what I would call like the BIM adjacent. But it includes 3D real-time, so it's leveraging... I'll say 25 years of 3D real-time history with me personally. BIM adjacent. The BIM adjacent. What is, def define that. So I would say these are the people that pay for BIM 
uh, are are related to or you know part of the building design construction and operations um, capacities, but they're not in um, BIM authoring tools or even getting to touch it. Maybe they get to look at something that someone else is controlling, but they like rely on BIM to get their job done or they don't actually yet realize they need BIM to do a better job. So it sounds like the thinking is that it's not the creation tools that are used to author and get that information created, but more on the consumption side. Yeah, it's the form of consumption. Uh, and I can talk a bit more about BIM and what what we did to address this. But in a, in its own way, if, if I think of like a insurer or a property developer or someone in a finance team or even like a data analyst, they create their own content so that they can you know, continue progressing in their jobs. And for them, BIM can be an input and it should be, you know, there's a lot of rich data there. That makes sense. So, um, you know, when I asked you or sent you the note about coming on, uh, I guess it was probably about a year ago that I heard you or, and saw you starting to use Power BI kind of on the front end, of some of this information, which is what I guess is why I, I kind of thought about it as more of a consumption tool than, than authoring, or at least that piece of it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you all been thinking about using Power BI with, you know, it's kind of the front end interface for some of this and how that came about. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. So uh, I have to go back a little bit before I can, I can answer that question directly. But basically, when I joined them, I hired up a team and we built out a new 3D real-time format for the built environment plus engines to render that content that did not include the baggage that typical game engines and file formats had because they needed to handle things like physics and animation and, you know, be able to make 2D scrolling casino games if you're Unity, for example. And there's a whole bunch of cost to that and it's, frankly, unnecessary in our world. But what that file format allowed for was bringing closed source BIM or BIM that is coming from IFC, um, yet not appropriate for real time, bringing it to a real time environment. And it, it itself was a high performance database, which allowed us to experiment in Power BI directly because it could index into SQL without any manipulation. And so like two years ago, I was actually doing some QA and the easiest way for me to test that we were getting all of the, the BIM properties or parameters was actually to go into SQL and then view it in Power BI because Power BI is like a front end for databases. And you can either be a non-developed, like you could just be a regular old person off the street all the way to being a pro data analyst that's deep in code. And um, I'm kind of somewhere in between the two. But what um, what we learned really quickly was, holy moly, like this is this is pretty neat because Power BI is a new Excel, really. But it's 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 like Excel to the power of four. It's very right. powerful. And what we were missing though was the the little three D component. 
But because we had built these engines in the past, we, we took one that we made for WebGL and made it work in Power BI. And that was actually just an easy process because it's a web app itself. And then we could have this like environment where you're, you're manipulating BIM and you're doing that BIM manipulation um, and interrogation in like Power BI. And, and then, and this is where it goes from consumption to creation. BIM then is just one of the inputs into this Power BI creation space because things like schedules, cost, submittals, RFIs, you know, environmental data, IoT information, all of that can flow in and be aggregated um, either asynchronously or in real time in a piece of software like Power BI, which itself is really a platform. And so then those like finance folks, they can continue to create their content that they need to and actually have BIM as an input. So if I was going to restate that the um, VIM originated with making sure that you had a database so that that information could be consumed and visualized as a 3D model. So it started there. And then, then the idea is during your making sure the database was correct, you began using Power BI on the front end and then they kind of start taking on life of its own about what the possibilities were. Yeah. Set. Yeah. Um, so the, the Vim data format is itself a high performance relational database because there's a lot of content and, um, and we, we looked at other ways to do it. We didn't necessarily want to reinvent the wheel, but we knew that using flat files or JSON content or even existing data structures had proven already to be uh, a bad idea for the amount of data that exists in the built environment. Um, unless you go and you strip a whole bunch of rich content out, which we didn't want to do. And then the ability to have that 3D viewing component tucked in there meant that you could give context. You give context to these people who normally just look at a spreadsheet. Now they get that 3D component and their own data can actually manipulate the 3D view. So like one example is um, a very large, very, very large software company license, licenses Vim for their own data and analytics and finance teams to be able to understand the cost of construction for different parts of their buildings. And they, just like all regular people, if it's easy and it's intuitive, they're going to use it. And so they've got these nice, easy and intuitive ways to get them into their world. And now they can be, well, do better at their job, frankly. So is that an example where they're using, um, they're now starting to use the 3D model as the interface to get to some of this tougher to kind of see or contextualize, I guess I would think of it as contextualizing that information. Well, they have- Facially. Right. So they have got uh, lots of 3D content, very well-defined BIM, but it usually kind of like stops at a VDC workflow. And then, mm -hmm. and they might get a picture or they might get some schedules, maybe. 
Um, but in this case, they, they can actually ask for a flavor of the BIM and bring it into their world where they've got all this other information that is as important as the design data, frankly. And their information is like, how much are we going to pay people for how long to build the thing? And, you know, is it on schedule? Is it not? Why is this behind? Uh, everything from the supply chain all the way to the specialty trade contractor finishing a meeting room, for example. All that information is critically important and is often absent in the BIM. Uh, and But they can bring it together. And they can bring it together where they're at, which is typically financial reporting tools like Excel or today Power BI. Gotcha. So it's still largely during the construction process, but I would assume it can go on into facilities management side of things. And, yeah. yeah. We're seeing it mostly in design and construction. We're seeing a lot of value in construction. And then we're seeing a ton of appetite in operations because the cost to make a building is high. I mean, it's, it's a lot of cost, and it, it, but it's capital expense. Um, and to operate the building is, will, will dwarf that over the life cycle of that building. You know, you've got to run this commercial facility for the next half century. That will cost way more than whatever you paid to build it. So you, you want as much rich data so that you can operate this building for less. And there's this other like perfect storm that's happening in the built environment, which is that there are fewer and fewer people to maintain these facilities, but there are more and more of them and they're more complicated and they're bigger. And so it, I think it's a ripe opportunity for technology to fill that gap. Yeah, makes sense. Can you give, um, give examples of the other types of data outside of BIM, traditional BIM information that's coming through? What are some examples of the other kind of info that they have that they're able to tie in and begin to make those connections? I can, I can tell you what I have personally played with and experienced, and, but I am, I'm positive I'm only like, you know, scratching at 1% of the possibilities. Like there's definitely going to be some guy that had like a hot dog chain and it's going to have like a lot of hot dog information that I've never anticipated. Yeah. Right. So, um, so what I hear about a lot is, um, the during design, um, is I guess during design and construction, um, is the EPDs or like uh, the amount of carbon, you know, stored in these materials, uh, or for the cost of the carbon for the process of getting the materials to the site. That's one component. And, um, Another is the variety of data, I don't know, I guess you'd call them data tables that explain who's going to do what, where, and when, and how much is it going to cost. So kind of the, the realm of the project manager, the construction manager, or the finance teams, there's just tons and tons of data there. And then as we get into operations, um, I have seen tests with our project capabilities or with our software capabilities to um, bring in IoT data in a retrospect. Like, let's look back six months and look at 
behavior of people going and coming into our buildings or sensors showing temperature, CO2, humidity, et cetera, in rooms, um, as well as live device tracking. And in, in all these cases, the, the data is like, it's, it's there, it's present and it is connectable to the building design data. It's actually not that hard to do it. And the, the, the access, like the decoupling of this from the BIM specialist, I think needs to happen. Um, and one reason I think it needs to happen is the, the folks that are paying for BIM, like don't ever get to touch it. So they, they continue to question its applicability. And when they continue to question its applicability, these, the BIM folks have to keep spending more and more time explaining why it's valuable. And if those BIM adjacent folks just got to touch and feel it for themselves so they could do their jobs better and faster, they would probably stop questioning how, how sure. useful it is. Yeah, even, even just to be able to touch it and know that you can derive information from it, even if they don't do something immediately, they can understand that everybody else around them probably is, is doing those kinds of things. Yeah, We've started using more and more Power BI um, with the work that we do here. And, you know, there's a certain, I've been uh, saying that, you know, there's a lot of data voyeurism that, you know, you just love to see information and data. But um, I think the maybe important thing that I've seen with working with data over the last few years is that, you know, you really have to have some tools like Power BI to let you experiment with it and see it in some different ways before you can start to understand like, oh, I didn't think about that I could do this with that data or combine it some other way. So yeah. you can definitely see how that would open up the uh, floodgates or the imagination on that side. From a technical standpoint, what tends to be the connecting piece of information that you're able to to use between these other sources of information. So like when you said costing information, is it like going down to, if this is coming out of Revit, mm -hmm. is it like at an element level uh, that there's some connection made? And then can you talk a little about sure. that? Yeah, it, it varies actually. So uh, sometimes you have access to IDs at the object or element level, like that atomic object that really describes like the smallest possible thing, you know, it could be a chair, could be a nut even. So sometimes you have that data outside of, of Revit. Um, and it, it depends on the BIM execution plan and, and whoever the, the project managers are, um, whether that information lives on outside of Revit or, or IFC authoring tools. However, I, I also see folks with like lower levels of precision, but they, their needs are, are just a little different. And, you know, one example is just, just even getting to a room on a floor and then having submittals, RFIs, you know, related information just to that room is often uh, a fundamental shift in productivity. For them. And, and I, I thought like, oh my gosh, we, everyone needs access down to the, the, like the carriage bolt under the table, but it turns out just getting someone into the right room 
is um, is significant. And then in dealing with like the world of embodied carbon, you know, you kind of flip the script. You kind of go to the master format world where it's about materials, and and materials are really interesting because turns out everyone can spell concrete differently. And so you need some like interesting smart tools, maybe even a little AI to help understand that someone meant cast in place concrete when they wrote hashtag CIPP. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that's a tough challenge is, uh, but I do think that the uh, the tools as they're evolving, machine, machine learning and AI types of tools, which is a good time to plug that our upcoming Confluence event is going to be focused around AI and machine learning and kind of what the status quo is with a lot of people coming to town uh, uh, next month, about a month from now. So a little over a month from now. So I'm not sure when this will end up airing, but it'll, I'm sure this will be available before that, that event. But um, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of opportunity to, you know, I think begin to try to structure, I always say structure the data better, but you know, with a lot of these new tools in place, it really may mean that we can have a much more unstructured and let, you know, let the, uh, let these engines start to kind of make sense of whatever, build those bridges between it. Well, I, I mean, even you can't have chaos, like, and, and even the, the big tech companies, the Googles of the world, that their, their software and ours are, they're assuming like, we're, we're not like, total chaos that there is some structure somewhere so that these systems can find patterns and and do something with that um also in getting into the world of of real-time 3d those engines are expecting data in some form of structure uh and if you're not careful like you, you know you won't be able to show a real commercial project without severely cutting it down to almost uselessness so there's a, there's, there needs to be a lot of thought into presenting data, but expecting what your platform of delivery can do. And for us, it's like your phone over the, the, the cell network. That's, that's where we target. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So how would you characterize what you've learned so far with the difference between using 3D information data as your interface and delivery versus I'll just say 2D interfaces, things that you might be more used to seeing like in your Power BI reports and kind of 2D, either 2D graphs, Uh charts, lists. What have you learned in the last couple of years just on the balancing act there? Yeah. Instead of trying to force one on, you know, use, you know, my experience, because I, I came from the 3D world, much like you did go to architecture school, but never practiced and but I've always had 3D, you know, always thinking about that and that technology. And, you know, I think a lot of times those of us who do come from that angle, we're always trying to, you know, like, hey, you should use your, why aren't you using these kinds of interfaces? But, you know, like, like everything, there's, uh, there's maybe better tools um, to be used to apply uh, to the problem. Uh, so maybe you can talk a little bit about the difference between those kinds of interfaces. So... One of the design goals that we had was um, I was not, like you say, like to, to kind of force something onto people. And, um, and so 3D for us in the world of Power BI 
is complementary to data presentation. And it can give an answer really quickly if like, you know, pitched the right way. Like it has to be filtered down and composed. And what, what I mean by that is we had like a CFO complain to one of our customers. I heard this through the grapevine because they built this, but they used our platform to do it. The CFO was like, why is this room so freaking expensive? And if the CFO cared enough, the CFO could have just looked at tables and tables of data and figured out. So instead, because they won't do that, um, they don't have time. Our customer took our 3D viewer in Power BI and tuned it so that it would show a heat map of object density per room. And then in a fraction of a second, the CFO saw this and went, oh, it turns out that the, these rooms are really expensive to make because today a, a meeting room for a large software company has so many specialty contractors that go through it to do their work. It just takes a long time. And the CFO was presented with an option. If you pay more per square foot, you can finish sooner. And I think they were down to like the, uh, they were down to one cent per worker hour per square foot. Like they had that level of accuracy. Um, or you can pay as is, or you can pay less and it, you know, just takes longer to complete. And, uh, for me, that's a great example of like the 3d just cut through and gave an answer right away. Um, maybe another example is when contractors are bidding jobs and they only look at plans and elevations. Think of like an electrical contractor who has to run a 40 foot run of four inch conduit, but the plan doesn't make it clear unless you're looking at elevations, doesn't make it clear if this is like, is this underground? Is this up on a tray? Like, is this in the ceiling? Like where, where is this? The 3d model tells you that instant, like inherently built in. So we use it as a, as a way to, to reinforce what the 2d says. And the 2d's are, are, is like really neat because 2d can do stuff that 3d can't like, um, you know, how many pieces of glanceable information can you really get from the 3d model? Not much. Cause it's like very overwhelming. So we do cards, pie charts, dials, and tables and matrices a lot to show glanceable info. And, and it could be like, how ready is your project to go and like get lead commission started? And we have some numbers like you're 32% ready. That's terrible. Why are you 32% ready? Here's a big old paragraph and some 3d to explain why. And then, then you can dive into it. Yeah. It reminds me, uh, I would give a shout out to a friend of mine named Rob Snyder and uh, Rob worked Bentley and I'm going to take a note to remember to invite him onto the, onto the show because he's been working on, uh, basically, um, I'll just call it a language, but a, a new, uh, basically promoting that we should be combining traditional 2d, uh, representation of information in 3d models in a standard way, uh, so that they are more understandable because it yeah. is, it's always been either or, and he's really trying to merge those two worlds. So I'll make a note to try to get him on, on the show so that he can kind of talk that through. But I, 
I do think that there, you know, I was going to, as you were describing that, I was thinking about the new Apple, you know, pro, pro what are they call it? Vision Pro? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Uh-huh. Vision Pro? Um, you know, just that that, those new kind of hardware platforms are going to probably let there be this kind of synesthesia of sorts of, of different kinds of information kind of starting to come into these interfaces. And because uh, it is a challenge, right? It's like you're either, like I said, the traditional, you're either looking at this in text form and in some spreadsheet or something, or you're looking at it as the 3D model and it's like, where can these things start to, um, where can they start to merge? And ultimately, uh, I always just think about it from an efficiency standpoint. Where's the most efficient way that somebody can get their hands on that information? Most people aren't going to care yeah. whether it was 3D or 2D. It's like, can I get to it? And can I move on to, to whatever I need to do next? I think, you know, Gabe Piaz with the, with, uh, uh, with the wild that was bought by Autodesk. But I think he was, he was really starting to push on this idea of, you know, 3D isn't just for, uh, highly, uh, say photorealistic kind of visualization, but kind of pulling together and merging and collaboration of people who need to see and collaborate on this kind of information. So I think the things yeah. that you're describing seem very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it sounds like that you just kind of backed into the using of the power BI because that was the tool that you were familiar with using when you wanted to st- go start interrogating the SQL database. Is that well, accurate? Look, uh, I mean, there was like a perfect storm, Randall. And uh, it's called Magic Leap. And um, I guess the storm was that they basically imploded like three days after we finished an app for that platform. And we're like, oh, so we we don't have a home for our tech at the moment. However, what, what was happening kind of on the side was that we were making money by licensing our SDK um, on-prem to companies that had really big projects and they needed to get those projects into their like their non-BIM world. And so we um we we went in that direction. And then we we learned by I did a bunch of user interviews and and you know basically tested the market, did a bit of a an early test to see if there was appetite for them outside of the norm and and it turns out there is and there's there's a whole ton of people that well there's just more people that are not doing bim that need it than the reverse and you have to have different levels of accessibility like you have to have this um this term like delightfulness it's discoverability it's kind of delightful discoverability so so most of our users we figured um if they're kind of like tinkering with power bi or already pretty familiar with it would appreciate having stuff come from revit for them so the revit plugins are for the revit people or the ifc tools for the ifc type folks and and the analog there is it's like well you're already making you're already printing pdfs out of revit or whatnot so this is similar to that. You press a button, it makes an artifact. It's not editable. Um, and so then it can be shared on. So it can be part of a deliverable. And now that deliverable becomes a new input and it's consumable by folks in um, the world of data analytics. 
Uh, but it's also a there's a barrier there to be able to get um, into an SQL database, get it up onto AWS or Azure or you know whatever cloud provider you're using. So we we automated big chunks of this. So you can actually run the whole thing from soup to nuts automated, which would allow folks to stay on our cloud platform and, and experience it. And and if that's enough, like, great, you're done. Like, you got your info, you can share it. You can use it to do a better job with design construction and hopefully operations. But then part of that, like, discoverability means for folks that want to go a little bit deeper, they're kind of like, they're they're more technical than than maybe an executive would be. We knew that we needed to provide the ability for folks to bring this content from the auto-generated cloud system down back down to their machines so they can further manipulate this in Power BI on their desktop. Um, and this is where things get really interesting because they're starting to now really invest their own time they're creating and when they create it's like they own it it's, it's they're invested they're invested they're they're it's very hard for them to to just drop that investment that sunk cost and we didn't want them to we want them to continue to use vim and and make it really valuable so so the next thing we did was make it possible to any changes that they made like maybe they they build something by like putting their own company logos in the Power BI interface. Um, they Maybe they connected to some of their own data, like cost or schedule info or what have you. Um, but then the next thing, like to really finish the round trip was to allow them to upload that Power BI file as a new template that's just for them so that anytime their consultants the Revit or the IFC folks generate a new version or a, like Rev on their design data, they can run it through that automated system, but they get their own personalized content. And so that has proven to be uh, a real game changer because it's there are no barriers anymore and folks can stay quick and light in the cloud. But if they want to customize, they can do that. And then they can stay back up in the cloud again to democratize that for their teams. So then there's like a whole secondary level to this, which is licensing out the SDK for folks that are way too big to use Vim Cloud or they they must use it on premise because it's DOD work or what have you. And so everything I described, there's a SDK component to it and it can be bolted into their own environments. Um, but we're still building one thing because we, at our company, we use the APIs ourselves to build our product. So it sounded like, sounds like that the, the Vim cloud service both consumes Vim data, gets it into the right SQL database format for visualizing. And you've probably got a standard set of Power BI reports that can kind of sit in front of that the way it's configured yeah and and there's more coming every day and they they're like some of them are just it's like let's let's grade your papers like how how good is your bim uh you know how many how many 
bad Revit warnings are there? Or, you know, did you pin your linked files? Like it could be really niche stuff like that, kind of by BIM specialists for BIM specialists. But there's other ones in there that are like, I personally found really fun to just learn about and make. And one is like, how many shipping containers do we need? Like someone asked me six months ago, hey, Joel, like, can you tell us how many shipping containers these, like the FF&E would, would require? Because we're trying to figure out like, how much space do we have on the site? Or what does this look like for supply chain? And, and that's like the, the worst thing that can ever happen to me is that someone asks me a question and makes me curious because then I can't help myself but to try and solve it. So just the, um, to dig in a little bit further, you've got, you're using the Power BI and I know because we've started adopting that here, so I know enough to be dangerous, but I'm still yeah. learning what's in the lingo, but you're using the Power BI uh, service uh, where those reports, standardized reports, and then you're allowing customers to also use the desktop Power BI, create their own PBIX report files, push those back up onto your platform, and that becomes a new standard report as part of your all yes, service delivery. That's right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I can see where um, putting that power back into those end users hands i'm assuming that a lot of the people who would um who would be doing this would have enough technical you know know how to kind of at least start using power bi to start to build some of those reports and connect some of these data sources yeah it, it's it's neat you know both us over at, on the vim side and then the microsoft folks on the power bi side there it's like a fairly complementary design ethos around this where you can start off not knowing anything and take a few steps and then you can stop. You still get something that works or you can go deeper and deeper and then become like a super pro. You know, one one thing I, I witnessed in the last couple of weeks was a large AE customer of ours. The world of Power BI has been pushed down onto like the BIM specialists and they know the Revit really well, but they don't really know data super well. Um, and so seeing them pick up the intricacies of the, the way that data analytics can, can be presented and like amplify what they're trying to do with their BIM has really been really neat. And I heard that there was this annual meeting. This is a very big firm but they had an annual meeting and um, the the team that's using our product demonstrated this Power BI thing with some, you know, embodied carbon data. And they spent like maybe two days working on this or two and a half, plus about 30 minutes of my time kind of answering some questions about the VIM data model in Power BI. And they like, they like walked all home with the top prize for their internal competition. And apparently there were other teams that had been spending a year and couldn't get as far as these guys did. So that was pretty cool because yeah, it reminds not data me, people, uh, right? It reminds me, uh, I don't know, you were at Confluence last year, uh, Matt Anderley's presentation from AECOM and 
how Matt, his team had built uh, using Power BI kind of interfaces to those kind of project management, um, you know, and back to, um, you know, can people come in every day and kind of know what this, where, you know, where the projects are, whether they're on schedule, not on schedule, could, yeah. where there's fires, when do they need to raise the flag and, and call special attention? I'll probably try to get Matt on here too, to maybe run back through kind of that presentation. Cause I know a lot of the people I think the comments that I, I remember from last year after he gave that presentation was like, not everybody is the scale of AECOM, but a lot of people were saying, look, this, this is like a glimpse in the future. Everybody's going to need to be doing this. And, yeah. um, so it'd probably be good to get Matt on here to, uh, to kind of explain what they did on that front, but just collecting lots of data at scale and giving people simple interfaces. Like you said, I, I'm a data voyeur, so I love looking at all the data in lots of different ways, but most people just need like a red, yellow, you know, green, like keep going, yeah. keep moving something in trouble and then dig in. Yep. That's right. There's yeah. an art, there's an art to, uh, realizing that, you know, I think as product managers or people working on the product is really understanding who that target audience is. And just because it's interesting to me, doesn't mean it would be interesting to them. They're just trying to get, get some information out of the system and, and move on. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You said that you did some interviews. Can you talk a little bit about what that process looks like for you all? A lot of, we all talk about doing those kinds of things. And, you know, I, I end up talking to a lot of people myself, but there's, there's also just a lot of kind of anecdotal that comes out of these conversations, but maybe you can talk about what that process looks like for you. Sure. Uh, well, I was, I was taught how to do these interviews when I was brought on as a designer at Autodesk. And that was like 13 years ago. Um, and I learned from you know, design pros there. But these interviews, we we try to find similarity and we'll we'll talk to folks that have the same job title. We try to screen them first to make sure that, you know, we're not way off base. And we have a prescribed set of questions. We don't actually deviate because we want to compare the result. Um, try to do this as scientifically as possible. Yep. And um, so in our case, I had identified about five personas that I thought could work. And I, I, I aimed to interview three to five people per with potentially more. But if you get to three folks and they're, they're all answering the same way, chances are when you get to the fourth and the fifth, they're, they're probably going to give the same answer. But if they keep giving different answers, you want to keep interviewing more and more people until you find the trend. And in, in some of the cases, like I think one of the personas dropped out uh, for viability really quickly because turns out they just don't get BIM and they're too far away from the BIM authors. So our whole product wouldn't even work for them. They couldn't even start. But the, um, the other folks, you know, screened well. And then the, the kinds of questions I asked, cause I only had a limited amount of time, um, are, are a little less about demographics. I can actually look that stuff up independently. So I don't bother them during the 30 minutes they've given me or 40 minutes they've given me. Um, but it gets, pretty quickly into actually showing them mock-ups so they can really quickly understand what the thing is and what it could do or what it 
what it won't do so they're not confused. And then out of that, three personas became viable. Uh, one of them was property developers and all commercial construction across the board. Another one was owner reps. And, um, and the third was data analysts all in the built environment. The data analysts work at very large firms because they can afford to have data analysts. But in each of these cases, the like common thread between them we discovered was they're, they're all BIM adjacent. They like, they either pay directly for BIM if they're a property developer and get no benefit as they get PDFs and, and then a bunch of change orders and problems with federation or they're data analysts and owner reps and they're, they're managing their own like shadow system to try and figure out how to get this building built and not being able to leverage the rich data within BIM. Can you talk for a minute about, you know, when you said you do mock-ups, what kinds of tools are you the ones doing those or you, what, what, is, what does that look like? Oh yeah. The mock-ups could be, and it could just literally be a sketchy picture, uh, like a napkin sketch. The mock-ups could be software that like, like kind of works, you know, you press a button, the thing happens. Um, but analogous to architecture, you know, during conceptual design, like you kind of have to be careful. You don't want to make things look too finished because you don't want people to lock in on like this button has a rounded edge and why is it this color? <laughs> like, you know, the conceptual design for buildings. Like, why is this marble? I want travertine, you know, something like that. Sure. Sure. You know, I'll use PowerPoint quite a bit just to throw things on a slide, just to evoke some conversation more as we progress, we'll get more sophisticated and we'll usually build, use Figma or something to, yep. you know, give some click three, um, kind of here's how we're envisioning this mm -hmm. and use that as feedback. But I think you're right. There's this, uh, a question about whether or not how much we're projecting onto that versus just raw feet. You know, I just spent, spent a half day last week going through the last few months of customer feedback and just comments from our customer success team. And, yeah. you know, the, that's largely in text form. It's like, we wish you did this and this would be helpful. And then we interpret that and then ultimately try to go back out with something that, uh, yeah, that can be, you know, like I, what I always say is I like to give people something to punch at. It's like, you, you know, you almost have to create something that lets them understand at least what you're talking about so that they can Get, right. get some vis visceral reaction to it. But um, I'm sure that there's all, all kinds of ways that people mm -hmm. go about that and what tools. So I'm always just interested to hear those stories. Yeah. And and then the job, like once the interviews are done, it's like actually the the job is almost just started because all of that information has to be responsibly synthesized into a consumable report, right? That that an executive level person can scan through and read and go, okay, now I get it. Like this, this is going to work for these reasons, or it's not going to work for those reasons. And so, so a lot of time is spent then going through these interviews and, and writing a, uh, a good analysis. You know, it can't be long. It's got to be short to the point. I often like including quotes from the people themselves uh, that just 
ties it back to reality and makes it trustworthy, right? Can't have the like Joel product manager trying to, you know, lead a horse to water, lead the jury, I should say. Don't want that at all. I want some of it, a little bit. Well, I mean, I'll argue for my my position, like I'll argue that we should go after these guys. And here's my data to back that up. Um, but I, the last thing I would want to do is try to like manipulate or change the the answers. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. So what's, uh, what's next? So for us, actually, I mean, the thing is like pretty much built. Uh, the next thing is to make it self, I mean, it's already self-service, but to make it self-service with a, with payment. That's coming by the end of the year. And then tell the world about it. No one really knows about it. You gotta tell the world. It's like that's it's most here. of our problem. Right? <laughs> most of us that developed this technology were enamored with building it and uh, you know, you get it done and then it's like, oh yeah, I have to remind people that it's here. That's a that's a big part of it. Yeah, and and like we we try to I try to tell people about this and and kind of bring them on my journey as as tacky as I as I possibly can on LinkedIn so that it's approachable and it's not like I'm trying to sell them. But yes, like we at Vim need to now start to market the thing and market it to those personas that would be the ones that would pay for it. I've got a uh, a good friend of mine uh, that I've gotten to know over the last decade or so here in Lexington. And I teach this entrepreneurship class, but I always bring him in every semester and everybody loves it. But he's got this great story about when he was like a teenager and trying to raise money, needed to raise some money. So he goes to this festival that was here in town and he bought bottled water and he's walking around trying to sell, you know, bottled water. And a more senior gentleman than knew him saw him doing it and, and said, you need to take your cooler and shut the lid and stand up on the lid and tell everybody he's like nobody knows that you've got water so you should get and what i love about that story is that's not the natural you know that's like putting yourself out there and it's like yeah it's a very uh, i always describe it, it's a very naked thing right to do and uh usually not something you would naturally want to do it's awkward it's it's those kinds of things but it just encapsulates in one little short story what we should all be doing is as we develop these technologies it's like don't be shy to go out there and Remember to tell people about it because they don't know about it. And there's somebody with somebody new tomorrow that doesn't know about it. So I think that's what I hope comes out of this podcast as well, which is just another outlet, a little bit um, more behind the scenes about why and how we are all building all, all of these tools and what's going through our head, mm-hmm. especially for this audience. I think, uh, you know, we're all kind of designers and, and, uh, at heart and, uh, makers. seeing, see, yeah, seeing how seeing how the sausage is made, the good, bad, and the ugly of it, and what decisions were made. And uh, I think um, a lot of the audience uh, will appreciate that. So I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of the Vim story. Well, uh, just these conversations are always, like I said earlier, it's like it always gets me thinking of a couple of other people that can tie tie in some of what they're doing into these same kind of conversations. So I'm hoping that we'll have a, a nice informative series. So cool. got a bunch of people lined up. And, I appreciate you coming on, Joel. Any uh, last comments or thoughts? Well, I think for for all of us uh, who are making software platforms and products and 
for any of us, any of those that that aspire to do so is we should all be very proud of what we've done and not like you say like not be afraid to talk about about this because it, there are a lot of people that simply just don't know and they they'll they'll get a ton of benefit out of this and their jobs and lives will be a lot easier and better for for it yeah i think the uh you know just to kind of build on that i think that traditionally people have thought about the people that make the products and tools and there's people that sell the products and tools and the and the selling of it and the talking about it has always been like kind of a dirty word and it's like look the reality of this is people have to buy this stuff we have to know what they want or what's going to be helpful which is if we back up to what the confluence umbrella is about and why we do these events and and get out uh, is the, the underpinning of it is that that we have to be in conversation together as a group. Uh, the people are going to be using it, people that are developing it, and don't be don't be shy about talking about it. And yes, in the in the end, uh, if it's not useful, you won't buy it. And but if it is useful, you will buy it. And that's the that's the uh, energy that keeps the uh, keeps the wheels turning to keep 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 improving on all of this. So anyway, I, I appreciate coming on today, Joel, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Randall. All right. Bye.